Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive, professionally and personally. Hello and welcome to episode 42 of the Habits of Leadership podcast. My name is Dan Hasler from Cut Through Coaching, and joining me today is my colleague, Mr. Tim Perkins. Good morning, Dan. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, mate. Not too bad. Um, just thought before we got started, might just let people know about uh, what we've been working on with the uh, Habits of Leadership Academy. Uh, with all the stuff that um, has obviously happened this year, it, we've had to change the way we work. And uh, one of the things which has, uh, I guess, happened for us or come about as a result of having to move online with a lot of our coaching workers, we've seen the, um, I guess, the opportunities that arise to connect with people uh, wherever they happen to be in the world and wherever they happen to be um, on their leadership journey. And so we will be opening up um, for registrations for our new um online Habits of Leadership Academy very shortly. And if you're interested in just getting the information as soon as it becomes available, you just need to head over to habitsofleadership.com. And on that homepage there, you'll be able to just put in your name and your email address. And as soon as the information is available, um, you'll be able to, you'll be getting it straight to your inbox. Tell so, me, Dan, what sort of things would people be taking from a Habits of Leadership Academy? What could people expect? Yeah, I mean, well, what we're there's a couple of really important principles that we've realized are, are really powerful in the online space. And the first one is uh, small cohorts. So we're going to be getting, uh, you know, really small groups together in, able, uh, in order to ensure that people can, you know, hear and, and be heard and, and really can engage in, in, in the sessions. And in, from a content point of view, we're not necessarily going to have a curriculum per se, but we'll certainly be touching on basically all the stuff uh, we've spent the last 41 episodes of the Habits of Leadership uh, exploring. So things like emotional intelligence, leading teams, change, uh, coaching, you name it, it'll all be in there. Um, yeah, and we're just uh, going to be really, I guess, um, open to going where the cohorts that we work with want to go mm -hmm. as well. It's really, we, we've really noticed that if we can just um, listen and respond, I guess, to who we're working with, then they end up getting a heck of a lot more out of it rather than just, you know, the typical approaches to online learning is just pre-recorded content. It starts here, it stops there, and, and you know, that's kind of it, and we'll get as many people on the webinar as possible. Um, we're just going to try and go for a bit more of a, a, a personalised um, approach to that yeah. with, our, with our academy. Okay, fantastic. So really listening to the people who are involved and facilitating conversation between people, as you say, who are at different stages on their leadership journey yep. and helping them help each other Absolutely, as much yeah. as anything else. And with a bit of luck, you know, people from different walks of life, different, you know, um, areas, you know, education, corporate, wh whatever. So it'll be, be interesting to see how it pans out. But as yeah. I said, if, if you um, want to hear more information about that as soon as it comes available, then head over to habitsofleadership.com and just fill in the form there. But for now, Mr. Perkins, let's get to the matter at hand. And the matter at hand is um, a conversation you had with Mr. Parsi Salberg um, a few weeks ago now in his lounge over a glass of wine. T yes. Tell me how that came about. Yes, well, it was not your typical podcast interview, uh, certainly not in, in the, the realm that we work in anyway. But it, uh, yeah, so I, I had a great opportunity. In fact, it was through you, Dan, that I got the introduction to Parsi originally. And uh, we've had a bit of communication with each other over the last couple of years. And, and I took the opportunity to invite him as a, an international guest, a, a Finn, um, who's been living in Sydney for the last couple of years, to come and see a bit of Australia, seeing as we're all locked down and mm. um, and things had dried up in a little way for some people. So we took um, four or five days to drive up the coast of New South Wales with the ultimate destima destination being Lismore, trying to get up to this brand new living school, mm. uh, which is a, a place that has fascinated a few of us uh, throughout this year as we've watched it develop. And uh, Parsi was very keen to see the living school and a couple of other interesting schools along the way, which we'll talk about in the interview briefly. And, uh, yeah, so we, we did that a few weeks ago and then uh, after the trip when we'd had a bit of a chance to reflect on it, um, I went round to Parsi's place in Sydney and, as you say, he very generously gave me a bit of Scandi hospitality and we had a glass of wine and, and a good old chat. Yeah, excellent. And you covered a few topics. Um, the first one being, of course, um, the, the passing of, um, you know, a friend of ours and, and a friend of Parsi's, uh, Sir Ken Robinson. 
Yeah, that was. Um, it's it's really interesting to listen to it now, and I think this will take an interesting. This recording itself will have an interesting spot as we look at it from further afield. You know, in a few years down the track as well. In that, there was a real sense of sadness in Parsi as we talked. Um, I actually videoed the interview, and uh, and looking back at it uh, a couple of days ago, you just, yeah, it, he's very upset to have lost a good friend, and mm. and you know, and I know that you had a good relationship with Ken as well, and as we talked about it, um, you know, there's a real sadness about Ken's passing. So I think we we really provide the opportunity for Parsi here to pay tribute to his mate and talk a bit about him. Yeah, yeah. First of all, I I think it's really sad, uh, sad news uh, that Ken is not anymore with us and uh, I, I think he's one of those who left far too early but there's a lot, lot of work to be done done still I think and, and you know as, as you said that this came very um, suddenly and uh, unexpectedly really that what happened um, and so there was no time to to really think about this question as you as you've uh, phrased it but you know for me Ken is and is and, and and certainly was one of those people who had this extraordinary skill to uh, translate complex ideas in education into language um, that everybody basically would understand. I, I think it's a very very rare in our profession to have have somebody who um, uh, you know who who can speak uh, about teaching and teachers and learning and creativity and education uh, as, as a kind of a whole issue in, in, in a ways that will capture your attention and interest and curiosity. Um, I don't really know anybody quite like him who was able to do this. But you know, more than that, that he was not just a communicator, um, a speaker and writer and, um, and somebody who can who can give a in interesting I interviews, but he also had a lot to say. I he I think his background and experience, um, you know, working with educators and schools, but also beyond that, was a, some something that gave him this kind of a platform and microphone that was so much higher and and larger than any other other person. I I and I think that that's that is the voice that will be much missed. I, mm. I think that this world is, we are much worse off now without him and, and this voice that he, he carried through in so many places and so many ways. And, uh, and that's, that's, what, that's why he, he will be missed so much. Yeah, and I know we had some communication when this news um, came through um, about Sir Ken's death. And one of the things that, you know, we were discussing and you've said specifically is that it's our real responsibility for those of us who are really, you know, have some sort of a voice and are given opportunities to make some changes in education that um, we have a real responsibility. And when I say we, I shouldn't be including myself in the same basket as you. You, Parsi, um, Come on, Tim. <laughs> um, have a, a, almost a responsibility to continue this legacy of Ken. And I know that's something you want to do. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and can you know I have learned learned so much from him personally and 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 through his work and <coughs> and when this day when this morning came when I heard about his passing, uh, you know that was a, the first thing I promised to myself that I will I will be one of those who try to carry his legacy and and and, and work and thinking uh, on in my own ways and, and this is not to say that I could do it as Ken was doing but but I will con con continue that road and that message that he so passionately believed uh, yeah. and care about and um, I, you know i leave it to people to decide afterwards how how you know how successful this was but definitely you know my work and research on play and creativity and you know thinking thinking about the school as a place where uh, children's curiosity and uniqueness uh, would be respected more than we do now we're at the heart of ken's work as well so i will uh, i will certainly you know, get more energy and and fuel uh, from the fact that he's not around anymore to continue doing those things in my own way. Yeah, um, Ken had an incredible humanity about him, and I'm not sure. Uh, I've got a working theory about this, which is the fact that he had a disability as a young person through having polio and living with that all of his life. That maybe that made him a more empathetic person and you often hear about people who've grown up with illness either their own or vicariously through a sibling or a family member or 
whoever that they have this increased humanity about them and sense of empathy. Um, tell us about your memories of Ken's that sort of empathy, that that humaneness of him, because I know just looking at you now, you've got a big smile on your face. He he was a really funny guy, and uh, he made people feel good about themselves. Yeah, absolutely. But I think we need to raise a class for, for Ken's memory and, yeah, yeah. and for his work and legacy. And yeah. so Here's to you, so Ken, a little glass of organic white on a Friday afternoon in Sydney, two yeah. weeks after your death. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm sure that if he's... Uh, if he's watching somewhere now what we do, that he would appreciate something like, Absolutely. Something like this. Absolutely. But, you know, back to your question, uh, Tim, I, I think, you know, I met, uh, I met Ken probably first time uh, closely like this about 10 years ago, something like this, maybe a little bit more. Um, and, you know, he was a rock star at that time. He was uh, all over the place and he had the, uh, the most uh, followed and, and watched uh, uh, TED Talk and... You know, everybody praised him. So meeting Ken Robinson, I remember that it was, this was in Los Angeles, and it was like almost like going to see uh, Bruce Springsteen or mm. Bob Dylan or something like this. Like, you know, I don't know what to say to this guy, and he's probably not interested in all. <laughs> you know what what I have to say, but it, he was completely different. Mm. He was a very low key, uh, very much paying attention to uh, to people around. And in this case, you know, uh, my visit to him and. Uh, uh, probably most surprisingly, he said that I know your work. Mm. <laughs> I know what, know what yeah, you do, right. and I appreciate that. And that you know that took all this kind of a excitement and nervousness and anxiety away. And mm. it was like almost like sitting here and having lunch and talking about yeah. things. Um, and you know, he continued this this same thing with uh, you know all of those people that I know uh, were close to Ken. That he never he never made an issue of who he was. He, he and he never made a kind of a big issue of his these disabilities that you mentioned. Yeah. And I think, you know, when I was looking him at work, um, that, you know, I, I thought that because of the, the, he had some things that he was not, not able to do like most others um, because of these, uh, these uh, issues with his health that he had had, that he had to kind of uh, develop and grow in some other areas. Mm. And this humanity, this, the, the, the fact that he was really good with people was probably... Um, one of those things that yeah. he he, th he thought he ne he needs another skill to compensate for yeah. some of those you know he couldn't go hiking or he can he can yeah. do those things like dancing you know, dance, dancing dan which he probably would have absolutely loved yeah, is my guess yeah. so, yeah. so so I, I I'm sure that he he wanted to uh, Im improve the other areas of him and and his life and and that's that's where where he got his strength. Yeah, it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see what happens in the coming years with people like yourself and, and people like Dan Hasler, who I work with, having those sort of big public voices on education and, and having some influence. Because I know that one of Ken's frustrations, although he dealt with it incredibly well, was that despite being the rock star that you talk about, you know, the educational rock star, the creativity rock star, the really clear thinker, um, Governments, you know, it, it's been a frustration for a long time for me and that governments would bring people like him out. Uh, they'd pay a fortune for him to come out and to speak at these big conferences and to inform think tanks and whatever, but there seemed to be very little uptake of his actual message. Yeah, uh, yeah absolutely. And, you, you know, to add a little bit more into this, uh, you, you know, I, I guess that we are remembering Ken's, uh, uh, Ken's work and life here a little bit. Um, you know, Ken, Ken would never kind of a compromise mm. his message and words in front of the, any government or anybody. And this, this was a kind of a really unique thing in, a, in a, somebody who is doing consultancy and in, in, in a way would be probably given uh, a lot of work to, to do with the governments. But mm. he, ne he never <laughs> went that way that, you know, say things or speak in a ways that governments like or even better leave some things... Uh, Something silent, yeah, <laughs> unsaid. Yeah, remain, yeah. remain silent about the things that he thinks that this may upset some of it. You know, he was straight. He was telling these people, regardless of who they are, that the truth and the things as he believed. And I, I think we need we need more people like that in the future for sure. Yeah, yeah, an amazing guy. So really, this is uh, it's lovely to be with you, someone who knew him very personally and well. I know he wrote the uh, foreword to your uh, most recent book about play. Yeah, he and you know he he, he did. It did indeed, and you know sometimes when you ask people like Ken Robinson uh, and and his caliber to 
do anything for your book, you can expect a page or two, something that they probably had written before somewhere yeah, else. Right. But, you know, Ken took this, uh, anybody who, who reads the foreword in a Let the Children Play book, that Ken wrote, that it's really written from the heart. Mm. And, and, you know, he, wrote, he read the book. <laughs> That's mm. the amazing yeah, yeah. thing that he's, ma- he's referring to the stuff that we had in a book. And he really did a good work, mm. and uh, you know he, he he could easily say, that, um, "Yeah, I'll do that," but yeah, you know this is this is this is my yeah. stuff. But he took it seriously, and and he felt that this is something that he wants to be part of, and and that's that's kind of a, even strengthened my my kind of a respect and, and value of he his work and he he him as a human human person. Yeah, and it and it speaks a lot about him, as you say, but also about the respect that he had for you and your work and and the significance of your work. So that's. You know, that's something you should be very proud of as well. And it's uh, nice to have you both there in the same text. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we you know, I, sh- I, had a, uh, I had an honour to share the, the, the stage in a um, in number of occasions with him, mm. just two of us. And, and that's a kind of a, again, I felt a little bit like, you know, playing air guitar with <laughs> this E Street band when, when, when you speak with the, um, somebody like Ken. But, you know, even on the stage... He 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 never did anything to make me feel like I'm a little bit less, or I don't know something, or you know, asking me something that he knows that I cannot answer. That is a kind of a trick that you often do with yeah, people. Yeah. If you want make to yourself look better, yeah. If you want to make it, make yourself better, you ask ask your colleague something that you know that this person cannot say anything, yeah. and then you say, okay, let me tell you how it. He never did anything. Like Although this. he was such a troublemaker, you know, on the couple of brief occasions I spent with him, he was such a funny troublemaking guy that he may have done that just for fun. But uh, I'm pleased to hear that he didn't. Yeah, yeah but uh, for me, he, he most often did those things uh, not in front of the public. Yeah, but, exactly. But he, he was a troublemaker in the, in the social situations, yeah, yeah. like after the keynotes or after dinners or something. Yeah. Really, really funny, funny. But, but never, never kind of wanted to hurt anybody no. or do any bad things. Yeah. There was always a glass of wine afterwards <laughs> and a good laugh. Yeah, and a great example of not taking ourselves too seriously. And I've got to say, Parsi, sitting here with you at your place doing this interview, I think you've um, given me the same feeling that Ken perhaps gave you and it's very generous and it's, um, you know, there's no power play and, uh, and you know, that's much appreciated. So thank you. Sure. There is a funny story that Dan uh, tells about... Um, doing an interview with Ken up in his hotel room uh, several years ago after a, uh, a conference and um, and he was told he had 40 minutes with him and Ken was in a very chatty mood and they were up there for about an hour and a half and his assistant kept coming into him and saying, you know, so Ken, we really need to go downstairs. Your next interview is waiting for you. And he's going, no, 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 they can wait. I'm having a good time with Dan Hasler. They can wait. And eventually, 45 minutes late, he goes down and, and he tells Dan to come down with him to meet this next interviewer. Turns out to be the Minister for Education. And uh, so Ken was very happy to stay in the conversation with Dan and, and allow the, the Minister to wait. So yeah, I, I think Sir Ken knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah, yeah I think so too. Um, so I alluded at the beginning of the conversation, uh, Parsi, to the idea that uh, we've just been away, you and I and, and uh, wonderful art teacher Chris Rochester have had a, a great little road trip. We thought it'd be a nice thing for you um, as our guest here in Australia to uh, have a little road trip up the east coast of New South Wales and we had a particular destination in mind which is the amazing living school up in Lismore which has just opened. Um, while we were up there, you talked about the idea, you know, when we were talking with John Stewart, who's the, the principal there, and, uh, and with other interested people, you talked about the idea that if there was going to be significant change, reinterpretation, reimagining of schools, that it won't be coming from the top and it really needs to be a grassroots, you know, bottom-up sort of approach. Can you tell us a bit more about your thoughts on that? Uh, sure, yeah. You know, first of all, this... You know the significance of the living school in Lismore that we saw. We spent basically three days there mm-hmm. uh, with the with the uh, with the teachers and parents and and kids. Um, the most significant thing for me in that trip was to realize what school could be. And as I said there several times, that actually I think that it's not a school; it's a, yeah. it's a living thing, yeah. <laughs> some, some something else. But you know, there, there are a lot of. Um, not exactly similar things happening in this country, in New South Wales and 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 beyond. That are really interesting things to kind of experiment and test that how much we can stretch the, the, the limits of what people typically think when they think about schooling. Um, and you, you know these these are very advanced ideas. They often come with the with the kind of a maverick type of uh, school pl- principal or individual, like in in. Um, 
living schools uh, case, but it often also comes through different types of kind of a networks of people who mm. find themselves and, and, and start to do things uh, for, for real change. And, you know, that's why I'm saying that I, I see much more energy in these uh, individuals and kind of a collective of these individuals and networks mm. and, and clusters or schools in terms of, you, you, you use the word reimagining uh, schooling or education than um, basically in any government. And that's a kind of a, the, the, the two extremes are an, a kind of a forward-looking, bold individual thinker uh, who wants to do th things in a different way, yeah. like John, uh, John Stewart or, or many other people. And then you have the government uh, that is responsible, the Department of Education or Ministry or Minister who is responsible for the whole system. Mm. And, and there's much less this type of excitement and energy and, uh, you know, bold thinking yeah. in this upper level. For ov obvious reasons. I'm not saying that the, the government should, uh, you know, exercise crazy crazy out-of-the-box thinking all the time. Mm -hmm. But th that's why I'm saying that if, uh, if anybody's asking that where is the hope for change, I'm saying that there's much less hope in, you know, if you deal with this upper level of education, administration, mm. uh, and leadership, that compared to, you know, how much hope uh, you get for yourself, for example, to spend a couple of two or three days in a place like living school, mm. where you kind of realize that people are seriously doing these things. Yeah. <laughs> and the question is not yeah. just, you know, how to maintain and you know, keep these things going that we are doing, but like, like, like in the living, living schools uh, s situation that, you know, how, how do we expand this? How, yeah. how, how can we make this possible for those who would like to join this type of thing? And there, there are so many networks, so many movements uh, taking place here where this energy actually mm -hmm. is. And that's why I'm saying that, you know, when the change will come, uh, it probably don't, cannot come alone uh, from this grassroots power that we have, yeah. that it needs this top-down support. Yeah, 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 and that's why that's why people like Michael Fullan and some others have been speaking about this. That we need this bottom-up and and top-down yeah. thing, but we need to find a balance, uh, kind of a good balance between those yeah. things. But the the most interesting thinking is certainly now around the world is in this grassroots level activism. I wonder if that's um, one of the areas that a, a really um, thinking education minister should perhaps be exploring, the idea of getting the John Stewarts of the world, the Parsi Salbergs of the world, the educational mavericks into a space together and saying, well, what are your ideas and how can we support those to happen? Rather than thinking how many layers of bureaucracy can we put in your way so that it's almost impossible. I mean, the fact that John is such a meticulous and bright man, he's managed to get a school registered essentially on his own, but most people aren't actually up to that task. It, the red tape, you know, just ties people up in, in knots and it becomes impossible. I wonder if a, an education minister should be looking for the John Stewarts of the world and getting them in a room and offering them opportunities. Yeah, but Tim, it's very rare. I have, you know, I've been working during my life uh, hundreds of education ministers around the world yeah. and most of them, a vast majority of them, they want to be, they want to surround them with the people who think like them yeah. or the people who are not in any occasion raise anything that would be against their own thinking. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a very rare to find a, a minister, or somebody who's a system leader, who would be brave enough to have, a, for example, an advisory group, yeah. uh, a group of experts yeah. around him, yeah. knowing that you know there are people who may have completely opposite views. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the only way when you can really understand better what you do, what you want to do, and but also what what you could do. You know, there's one example that is not exactly like this, but it's a, it's probably the best example of this level of advisory and and kind of a courageous leadership um, that I know. And I've been now for the this is the fifth year to be uh, an one of the international advisors to the edu education minister. First. Uh, um, it's like a deputy prime minister, but also a minister of education in Scotland. Okay. And, and he, he created this uh, international advisory council about four years ago, a little bit more than four years ago, uh, and invited a handful, a little bit more uh, people around the world to work with him, advise him. And, and this group was exactly uh, planned for that purpose. Mm. Like he wanted to have different views, not just the inter international ideas, but people who think differently. And we, we are very kind of a diverse group. Yeah. And we don't, we don't agree on everything. 
um, as, as a group of ad- advisors. But this minister who is still, he, they're going to the elections next year, uh, but he often says that, you know, having these people who think differently and who help him to kind of a, kind of a challenge his thinking yeah. has been one of, one of the most important things in his leadership to, to understand what to do. And, uh, and, you know, if anybody's asking me to, um, you know, give a concrete example how this, what you were asking could be done, I, you know, I would say um, that, you know, why the minister, the new, new minister, for example, wouldn't have a kind of an advisory group or, mm. or a critical friend, a community yeah, yeah. of critical friends, just to meet every now and then and challenge him. Over a glass of wine in your living room. This is open for that. <laughs> if there's anybody there who is listening and hopes to be a minister, come here and we can yeah, have yeah. a good chat about that. But, but you know, that's the that's the kind of a thing that we would need now to, um, you know, you know, help these leaders. That is, a, you know, it's extremely. We should not un- underestimate the complexity of ministers' work. There's so many levels yeah, and yeah. so many things that we yeah. we often don't understand what they're actually doing. And we don't want their jobs, right? <laughs> we definitely don't want their no, jobs. No, no, but they, they they could actually most of them would benefit uh, of something like like what they what they what their colleague in Scotland is doing to have people and their views and in, insights and then then just you know take it use it all or leave it yeah. based on what you do. But just yeah. to have this idea that you have people uh, who you can contact, like this um, education minister, you know, he occasionally he calls me and others, just to make a phone call and say, I have an issue on my desk, mm. uh, or this and that, what do you think, how would you do this? Mm. And I can, you know, I can say, how w- what would I do, yeah. knowing that he will, this is not the advice that he has to follow. No. And I kind of guess that, you know, many, many of these appointed advisors and experts in the cabinets of ministers, that they, they often do things, that their advice is something that will kind of fit into the, the thinking yeah, and... Yeah. And, and political uh, values of the minister, not necessarily things that should be done. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because you've got the ear of one ex, uh, the ex New South Wales Minister for Education, Adrian Pickley, um, who you work with very closely on a daily basis now at the Gonski Institute. Um, yeah, interesting. Yeah, but you know, a- a- Adrian, had, when he was a minister, I knew him when he was uh, just in his first year of um, being Minister of Education here when I, when I met him here in Sydney. And he, and he has had a little bit similar way of working. I don't know exactly how what his way of working here here was uh, with the, the kind of a domestic uh, colleagues, but you know he called me every now and then about yeah. things, and uh, I considered myself as a in, kind of an informal, uh, critical friend to yeah. his his views, and so he he also exercised a little bit this uh, kind of a bold uh, thinking of. You know, reaching out beyond his uh, his own advisors and, and colleagues. In, yeah. You know, asking opinions and views how things, particularly, you know, how things have been taking place and shaping up in other countries. Yeah, um, we had the opportunity to visit three really interesting schools in our travels together a couple of weeks ago. We went to a, a democratic school in Sydney, a place called Currambina, a, a preschool and primary school, a little alternative school there that's now 50 years old and has survived some very conservative governments and dwindling numbers over the years, but is now sort of thriving. Um, we also visited Jarjum, the, the Aboriginal uh, school in Redfern, very small school there. And then of course, the living school. In each of these school environments, Parsi, you've been fascinated by one thing and it appears to have nothing to do with what the kids are learning specifically. Um, You have a very big interest in food in schools, food preparation, food sharing. Um, Why the the interest and emphasis on food and tell us a bit about it? You you know, the simple question, a simple answer to this question is that um, because there's no school meals, there's no food in schools, or if there is, it's not really what I would consider healthy or good for growing children and their learning and, and development. And, um, you know, I, came, I, I come from a country where free school lunches, healthy school meals have been uh, offered for free for everyone every day since 1943. Mm. So there, I, I don't know any other reality uh, than, you know, being, having a school where the school lunch or meal is big part of the big part of the thing. So that's why I've been asking... Not only in these three places, but you know, any school I I visit here, I always want to see how the, the what the kids eat, yeah. and, and and I also want to understand li- like why why people 
think that they are no, what, what, what is the reason not to have a school lunch yeah. uh, thing there and, and often you know surprisingly and this is this is one of those things that i i would like to really change here in australia is is the the answer to these questions that why don't we do something in a school like why don't we provide healthy school meal and teach all of our children about healthy nutrition how it affects your growing up your learning and well-being and many other mm-hmm. things when i hear people saying that well this is how we've always been doing these things <laughs> and it seems to be like a australian response to things that they haven't really thought about you know why we why we couldn't do that so that's why i think it's an extremely important part of the schooling and education what people eat and particularly as you know uh, yourself and everybody should know this that how unhealthy stuff uh, young people particularly teenagers these days put in their mouth uh, yeah. that has nothing to do with uh, you know growing up healthy and happy and uh, being ready to learn yeah and as an ex maths teacher yourself Parsi, um that was your schooling subject that you taught i would imagine that getting people like you or a science teacher or an art teacher or an english teacher whatever the subject area happens to be to map the idea of a school um garden a school kitchen the preparation of school meals it could be mapped against all subject areas the idea that we say we don't have time for it because the curriculum's too full for me that's a lack of imagination that's right yeah absolutely mm. and i think you know one wh- one thing here in australia that we have that is very different to basically uh, you, you know the the rest of the world really the, as i know it the oecd countries the wealthy part of the world that we have we are already spending you know so much time uh, in school with the children trying to teach them all kinds of things mm. uh, and and honestly i think that we are we are trying trying too much mm. <laughs> that we, we are asking kids young children like we have an 80 year old uh, going to year two here in a public school and his school stay school days are, i think i think they're too long there's too too mm. there's too much you know trying to teach these little kids something so we could easily take some of the time and convert it into um you know focus on nutrition uh, uh, school meals you know yeah. the, the, the kind of a table behaviors and cultures and habits that we we could do around this uh, dinner table here yeah and it, th- this is uh, honestly you know this is one of those beautiful things in a finnish school that i really miss that the, the part of the part of the task of the school is to teach every single child what it is to share a meal mm. with your friends and colleagues and often people you don't know in a school yeah uh, how important it is to respect what you have in a plate and finish it um, and go and have a chat with the people who prepare this food yeah. and ask you know where where did this come from or you know if you're curious about the food say how did you cook this what goes in into yeah, this yeah. thing um, and you know if we w- because we are completely missing that here uh, and i just ca- can't understand that why we are not doing that particularly in these times when the we know that the children's health and and well-being is declining going down mm. this would be the the best and easiest and probably also cheapest way to not only increase young people's health and well-being here but also through those things uh, make sure that everybody would learn better yeah and i i saw i mean i i'm a bit of a foodie and i've discovered that you are as well and we were so well looked after in our travels in oh my god we stayed <laughs> yeah, with yeah. friends on farms all the way up it was it was so great we didn't stay in an yeah. airbnb you know parsi's sleeping on a camp bed in the lounge room on one farm we we're in and in another room with sort of you know lots of cracks in the walls and whatever we stayed in these great rustic places but the food that people prepared for mm-hmm. us was really um you know it was amazing food and just the the way that that led to conversation as yeah. well about what the flavors we were having and and the the people who'd gone to the trouble to prepare it for us just friends of ours and you know it was uh you know it, it sort of leads me on to this next question that i wanted to ask you Parsi, because i think i don't know if it's an australian thing as as you were saying before you know you've only known school meals at school and to a great extent i've only known sort of australia and what it is to be culturally australian I'm just wondering from your perspective you've been here for a few now, years now do you think we lack confidence um you know and maybe it's the youth of you know the 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 modern australia but in our own ability to educate our kids and trust them to learn which has kind of brought us to this crazy point where we feel like we're just cramming stuff into them because my view is that the teachers aren't happy and the kids aren't happy and the parents aren't very happy and therefore who's this actually benefiting is it because we don't trust ourselves to do more interesting things uh, yeah i think 
I, I try to say this in 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 a way that nobody would <laughs> take <laughs> offense. <laughs> yeah. But you know, yeah. I I think I, I see so much thinking here, particularly when it comes to education that is so traditional. Again, you know, it's based on the same uh, same. Uh, uh, thing that this is, this is how we always done these things, and you know, in, in a way, I think we need to also look beyond parents and teachers and children uh, who are not, you know, happy with the current uh, system and culture and, and situation here. That's for that's my experience as well, and and you know, look at how the system has been designed. You know, this, this system has been designed in a particular way uh, here in Australia. It, that it's good. Uh, it's a world class system for. Uh, some kids, but not all of them, mm. uh, and uh, and you know that's something that if we if we really want to change, if we want to be a kind of a world class uh, education nation as a whole, or New South Wales here, uh, we need to think differently about this thing. We we cannot continue uh, just looking at the tradition and past and say we just try to do these things that we have done in the past in a little bit different way. You know, the good example is now this current. Uh, conversation and debate about the NAPLAN, the assessment system here, mm. and the review that was published a couple of weeks ago. It's basically just uh, proposing it's continuing the same way, but doing a little bit more assessments. So for me, this is, I, I'm using this this uh, metaphor of rearranging the deck chairs in, in the Titanic when we know that the the uh, uh, you know the disaster is waiting there ahead, but we still want to, we are still unable to kind of a uh, do something different in in uh, in Lismore in living school. We use the the idea of you know leaving the ship and taking the train or yeah, some, yeah, something exactly. something like this. And you know this is what what we should need here to to exercise more at at least at the level of conversations and thinking like this in a public uh, public conversations mm. rather than you know asking all the time that how can we improve what we have done so f- uh, so far a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and um, you know I'm. Uh, also saying that when I, particularly when I look at the NAPLAN and the conversations here, it's, it's almost like you know trying to do the wrong thing just a little bit rider. Yeah, and that's something that you know doesn't it doesn't get us there. You know, most of the other nations that have been able to transform themselves or their education systems in one way or the other, there's always been behind the idea that we have to radically do something in a school system in a different ways. Mm. You know, leave all these all these past things and traditions behind. Sometimes it's painful. To uh, you know, let those things go and create something new, and this is something that I think would be helpful um, to you know start the conversation in a public level. But you know, when I look at the news or comments, um, how how the authorities and, and system leaders are uh, kind of reacting to these things, it's uh, just kind of a confirming this this idea that I have that. We are living in a very traditional environment yeah. when it comes to, particularly when it comes to education, and you know the the fact, of course, here is that, you know, for for many people or some people, this, this is a perfect system, and they don't want to be part yeah. of this conversation. You know, yeah. if you if you as soon as you find a good school, a good way of educating your own kids, you don't want to, you don't need to worry about that anymore, mm. other than paying a lot of money for <laughs> for that, yeah. and 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 that's why I think. What we need to have here in Australia more is to have everybody engage in these conversations about education, and again, you know, leave this idea behind that it's good, it's good enough for me when I have solved the problem of my own children's yeah, education. Yeah, yeah. That, that's not good enough. That's that's fine. That's yeah. okay. But then, because then you would be free to to have a good conversation about, you know, how how do we change how we, how we create or redesign the system that would be good for each and every child. Yeah, it's interesting. When I was lecturing at uni, I often used the yardstick of my own children and I'd work with some students at the university and I'd, you know, and I actually had very frank conversations with them at at some stages as well, just trying to get them to, you know, not in a patronising way, but just to open their eyes a little bit more and to be a bit more political and to be a bit more thoughtful of what they were doing and thinking, well, would I trust this person in their current form to teach my own kids? And, you know, and that was sort of, that became a responsibility for me as well to really challenge them. Talking to your wife, Parsi, just before we started this interview, we were talking, well, she was talking about the idea of, you know, the fact that we're just not very political in schools. And she was talking about teachers who um, hadn't heard of Sir Ken Robinson. You know, I've talked to lots of teachers who haven't heard your name. Um, People who, you know, don't know about alternative schooling in their own city. not really getting their head up above the water and challenging things and being a bit political. And I think it's, it, it always strikes me as odd that in, 
in a country that was colonised by Europeans, following a European system, colonised by Europeans, you know, only 250 years ago, that we are so conservative. I would have thought that, uh, you know, older established European countries like yours, for example, would be far more averse to change. Whereas it appears here that we are just in a very conservative culture here in Australia. Is there a difference between us here in Australia and, and New Zealand? What do you think in this respect? Well, I, I can only talk, I, I, I certainly can't talk strongly about what happens in New Zealand, but I do know that New Zealand has a very interesting attitude um, towards the development. You, you, you mentioned people who are mavericks before um, that allows and, and encourages mavericks to open schools and they have a whole category of schooling called schools of special character, mm -hmm. which allows people to open schools with alternative progressive approaches to them but more importantly than that, a bit like in Victoria, those schools are then publicly funded. So they're not for elites, they're not for rich lefties, they're for everybody. Uh, and people are given a lot more choice. I think we've seen, you know, a lot of leadership um, from New Zealand in the in the last 12 months or so through Jacinda Ardern and her brave sort of approaches. So I would like to think, my view is that New Zealand's not you know they're conservative in some ways as well, but I think that politically they're they're a bit more open-minded perhaps than we are. Right. Yeah. Good. I'm learning about those things. So I've been here for uh, about two years now, and I try to make sense out of this many many of these things. Yeah. Um, we're going to get to a couple of amusing topics in a minute, Parsi, because our trip was nothing if it wasn't amusing. Um, but I've just got one more for you about child well-being. Now you've got two little boys. Um, one of whom we've just spent some time playing with and learning about his dinosaurs and playing dominoes with him and watching his brain. I mean, this was really quite extraordinary. The, the listeners aren't going to see um, your beautiful little boy Noah, but four years old, you speak to him exclusively in Finnish, your wife speaks to him exclusively in Croatian, and he spoke to me exclusively in English, and you could watch his brain making sense of all of this stuff and it was fascinating as he tried to engage me in a game of dominoes and to learn about his dinosaurs that he was doing it in his third language um so when we talk about child, child well-being and happiness you've got a very strongly vested interest in this with your own young kids so what do you see as the relationship between children's well-being and happiness and the stress that kids seem to be under through a competitive and anxiety inducing system that you know i can fairly confidently say that we're a part of now uh, you know, I, I, I think that we we can fairly confidently say that with the, with the confidence say that the uh, the stress that comes with the schooling, not only here but in many other places as well, is strongly linked to the um, disengagement and dissatisfaction and declining well-being and certainly happiness of, of children. For example, if you take a look at the OECD's. Um, um, the data from the OECD's PISA that now also includes the uh, life satisfaction. That is, mm. has a very strong correlation uh, with the um, uh, happiness. So you can basically ask the same question, how happy the kids are in their lives or in the, in the school. That is a kind of alarming uh, rates, how, how few kids are actually happy mm. or feel well um, in uh, in school. We are, look, we are, we are talking about 15-year-olds, teenagers here. Yeah. And... Um, and we know that in Australia, the statistics show us that in Australia there's a distinct dip at around that age, 14 to 16, That's right, yeah. in students' engagement and happiness with school. Yeah, and there's about half of the, um, half of the Australian children, uh, according to the, the, the OECD data and other health um, uh, indicators here in Australia, say that they are experiencing uh, school-related stress and anxiety mm. regularly. So... So I, I think that there's something something really happening, uh, not necessarily in what you know what the teachers do, but again, what we adults are expecting young people to uh, young people to do. You mentioned the the um, these two boys that we have, and you know one thing that I've learned about this new situation here that we have a trilingual kids uh, who are now going to school and who are being taught uh, in in their third language actually. And, and they're learning to read in the third language. Mm. Uh, that you know what, how, how those people feel who are refugees or immigrants for any any reason, and they are in an environment where they have to learn themselves and their children mm. 
not only to communicate with another language, but to be kind of educated <laughs> and then tested with this uh, mm. language that maybe kind of a strange thing for them. Um, I, I cannot say anything uh, yet from my, the experience of my own kids, but I can I can I can kind of guess that if they uh, and when they are put in this kind of a high stress environment of you know, for example, if, the, if their school and teacher would say that in, in, in a couple of months' time you cannot sit this important test and you will be tested in how much you can read and what you can do in mathematics, mm. that they would, uh, you know, not not only be stressed because of the, the stuff that they feel they, they can do well, but also because of this language thing. Mm. That why do I need to... Why you are not asking me these questions in Finnish or yeah. Croatian? Because that's that's how I can communicate my mathematics much better than in mm. in English. That we need to be probably more mindful um, uh, with this well-being uh, and str- uh, stress thing with the, with the kids than than many people are. But you are absolutely right that you know if you when when I have conversations with parents and and teachers about these things, most most teachers and most parents are not happy with. What's what's happening and going on in mm. in schools in general? They're very happy with, with they're much happier with their own teachers and and what they do try to do with their kids. But but overall, how the what the system is asking, expecting from these very young children, that there seems to be a, a very common dissatisfaction uh, on, you know, how, how well this these systems are designed to really grow up healthy and happy individuals. Yeah, and look, I think a degree of stress, you know, we need to learn how to deal with stress. I think a degree of educational stress isn't necessarily the worst thing, providing the any stress or strain that we're putting kids under happens for a really meaningful, valuable purpose. I'm not personally against testing or examinations. Um, you know, they're kind of part of life, but... I just wonder if we overemphasize it in a way that is counterproductive. If if we were really getting something from it, I mean, this is one of the big complaints about NAPLAN over the years, which hopefully will be addressed, is that you do it very early in the year, you get the results very late in the year, and you can't really work on it. Yeah, but you know, much of this stress is really what some people call the toxic uh, yeah. stress that is yeah. really harmful, can be harmful for the emotions and and uh, the psyche of of young people. And you know, I'm with you with that. That the, you know, life is full of situations where you have to be able to tolerate and bounce back uh, mm. from the hard, hard situations. But, you know, if the school is not helping to develop those skills and yeah. those attitudes and habits of mind, minds, that many schools don't have time to do that. You know, this is where the, the schools are saying that, you know, we don't have yeah. time to do this because we have to kind of uh, prepare these kids for something that will be tested. That's where the problems come. Yeah. And I, I, I think like you that, you know, we can, you know, we can and we should have continue to have those uh, those elements in schooling that you cannot always succeed and, and you have to tolerate, you have to l- learn to tolerate the failure, but we have to teach these children how to do that. And mm-hmm. if they do, if we don't do that, then then this toxic stress can turn into something that can be very harmful. In yeah, the yeah, I think that's really well put. Thanks, Parsi. Um, now, one way that people can manage stress and increase their happiness is reggae music. Uh, we discovered something surprising about you Parsi as we listen to reggae up and down the east coast of uh, New South Wales a couple of weeks ago tell our listeners something they don't know about you in relation <laughs> to being a reggae DJ yeah you know that was uh, that's but that's a long time ago I was just <laughs> a, uh, I was a student in in Helsinki that time it, this was in the late 1980s and Helsinki as a city, for those who have been in Helsinki recently, you wouldn't recognize the place. Uh, it was much more kind of a closed and uh, monocultural. Uh, there was no, the music scene was very kind of a Finnish type of Finnish American type of music, and there was not really there was not nobody no place where to go and listen to alternative uh, uh, music like reggae music. And um, I was hanging around that time with the group of um, musicians, and one of them had a reggae band actually with the international players and and he them them actually they, they introduced me to music in Finland it was very hard to get this was before the internet mm. so everything if you wanted to play reggae music you need to have you need vinyl. to have your oh, you had to have your own vinyls yeah, or, or yeah. you need to know somebody who has a kind of a great music mm. then you go there with your tape recorder and make some tapes and so this is where, where it started and then I had a chance to go with a friend of mine from Helsinki to uh, spend some time some six, uh, six, eight months probably in in Jamaica uh, that time, where all this this music was actually 
uh, made and and from and and that was really started this fire in in this music when I when I saw how the, how how people make this music and how it's created and used and how important part of the culture it was, and and there was a really hunger in fin- in Finland in Helsinki that time for mm. you know having a place where people can come. Um, and listen to this music, and uh, you know the beautiful thing being a DJ, uh, reggae DJ at that time in in Helsinki was that, you know, unlike many other clubs or music places where people went to drink and they, or they went to look for company or <coughs> or something like this, in our club that we had weekly, most of the people came there to listen to this music. Mm. They came to hear something new and uh, and meet people who share the same kind yeah. of interest in the music, and it was a beautiful beautiful way of you know learning learning to understand this music and culture better myself but also share something like this uh, with so many people there and yeah. uh, and I'm, I'm sure that if they when when there is the the history of uh reggae music culture in finland that our club uh, has <laughs> to be mentioned there and, uh, you know we were wearing these jamaican uh, jamaican three color uh, hats yeah. and uh, had a long hair and you know all these th- things uh, was kind of a funny. I don't want to see myself <laughs> anymore like that. But, but you know, it was a time when um, when music was really big part of my life. It still is. But that was a that was a kind of a high high point of my musical uh, life for sure. Yeah. Well, being such an international man as you are, having lived in Italy, having lived in the States, having lived in Australia, I hope one day, you know, when you're you're back in Finland, you get a chance to access and dig into those crates of vinyl again. Did you bring any with you to Australia? No, I don't have any of them here. My whole collection is uh, is waiting for me in, in Helsinki. But, you know, that's a kind of a nice... Uh, sometimes when I'm filled with a no- nostalgia uh, of the, the kind of old old times, and so I, I take some of those vinyls and yeah. a glass of wine and just play them. Uh, and, uh, you know, the thing interesting thing is that the, the sound of the vinyl, any, any vinyl, you can play Beatles or Rolling Stones or Reggae, it's a little bit different than this digital mm. music. They're so pure, and uh, there's no scratches there, anything like this. And yeah. I, I think the music needs to have this little kind of a roughness there, yeah, yeah. but particularly this type of music. Fantastic. Now, one other thing, and we might finish with this, Parsi. One of the other things that I discovered about you on this trip, because one of the farms we visited and stayed at actually had a Finnish sauna, and it wasn't by mistake we went there. And uh, you taught me a few uh, of the rules about the Finnish sauna, which I wasn't familiar with. I didn't tell ev- everything, so we, uh, have, we have to do that again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know what else there was to learn, but I'll tell you, it was an eye-opening experience getting into the uh, the sauna with Parsi because two of the things that I discovered were that the Finns like to drink in the sauna. I thought it was uh, – I was a bit more purist about it. I thought we'd just drink water and be on a fast. and But uh, Parsi uh, made it very clear that's not the case uh, – Plenty of beer was consumed in the sauna, and I think if we had vodka, we would have been drinking vodka as well. Is that correct, Parsi? Yes, uh, we we can do that too. <laughs> yeah. You have to drink, otherwise you dehydrate very very quickly. Ah, so yes. He's saying that with a twinkle in his eye. I can yeah, tell you. Yeah, yeah. The other thing about the Finns is that they like to sauna in the raw. So that was an interesting experience with our international guest, Mr. Parsi Salberg. When you see him on Q and A, he wears a smart jacket and he's you know got his hair done. But when he's in the sauna, all bets are off. So, uh, in fact, you wanted to do this interview from your sauna here in your apartment building. That was an option. We can, we can do we can do the part two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it might have been very distracting. Yeah. Actually, I think the sauna is there for for those who who haven't been in a real Finnish sauna. You don't know what we are talking about here. Mm. But sauna is really the place where where you can express all your ideas and thoughts without being afraid of uh, you know somebody saying that what a silly silly yeah, thing yeah. to say. And uh, and that that's why I think you know having conversations like this or similar things are are so good to take place in. A, in a hot room with a glass of water or a bottle of beer, if you wish, and <laughs> just, talk, just talk about these yeah, things. Well, this, you've heard it here first, folks. This is how education will change in Australia. Parsi Salberg's going to get us into the sauna. No, even better. We build sauna into every school building here, and, well, and that will change. I can tell you that will change everything. That's a nice idea. Well, you heard it here first. <laughs> but, you, but actually, many Finnish schools have sauna, if you go and see really? the, yeah. all the All the new buildings, all new schools built. You go there and sit down with the principals. You can you can say, "Can I see your sauna?" And uh, she or he will be able to show you. The wow, 
Wow, well, that's certainly not the question people are asking here. Um, Parsi, it's been such a pleasure having a chat with you. I feel very privileged to be able to spend so much time with you and um, hear so many of your thoughts and it would be great to have you join us again sometime and I really hope that during your time here that you're both the catalyst for and the observer of, you know, some significant change in, in our system in Australia so that... You know, my real interest is the teachers so that the teachers can be happier and more satisfied and 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 more professionally aware and then also, you know, the obvious trickle-down of that that our students have a great experience of school as well. So I really hope that that's what you see while you're here. Thank you. Thank you very much and thanks, Tim, for giving me this uh, this uh, opportunity to hold this microphone and say, say what I think. It's been a lovely conversation. Thank you. Good on you. Thanks, Pasi. So a couple of things really uh, jumped out at me. Um, listening to that conversation between you two there. Um, the first one being, I th and I think this is probably because it's something we do a lot of in our work, but where Parsi was talking about the benefit of having a critical friend. You know, I'm not sure that a lot of people necessarily really understand the nature of a relationship of a, of a critical friend. You know, we often talk about that in, to prospective clients. And it's like, mm. tell, like, what is this, you know? Mm. And so I like I like the way you sort of drew that out, it, you know, being able to share ideas, bounce ideas with no, um, you know, no obligation to follow through. It's not yeah. like, um, you know, a consultant, so to speak. It's yeah. just a, bit, a, a safe space, if you like, to be able to bounce ideas around. Yeah, I think I, I agree with you, Dan. I think a critical friend is so important. And I suppose in one way, the challenge of it is once you get to the top of the tree, you kind of feel like you need to be the font of all knowledge and therefore uh, asking other people might be seen as a weakness. Mm. And, you know, Parsi's approach is very different to that. And as, as he said there, you know, he's uh, on an advisory panel and, uh, and it's proving to be really valuable. So we might see more of that. Yeah. And also the thing that really jumped out at me was um, when he was talking about resistance to change. Mm. You know, obviously we, um, last episode, episode 41, we were talking um, about, um, you know, why change fails. And I don't think we actually, I can't remember using that phrase that Parsi used here, but it, it's obviously something that's... Uh, present in lots of places the idea well we've always done it this way mm. you know why would we change if the and, and i guess it does speak to that we, we spoke in that last episode about creating a sense of urgency why should we change mm. um so i think yeah recognizing that we've got to overcome that um i think you used that idea of uh, trying to do the wrong things a little more right or something like a that. little writer yeah. i think he said yeah that's right so i i think that that's true as well you know that um we need to, I, I think brave organisations will challenge that. And of course, you know, that idea of tradition and, and doing things a particular way and they're working to whatever extent, um, being brave enough to, to start again and look with fresh eyes and maybe that comes back to what you've just been saying about critical friends as well, having, having an outside perspective to look in it and say, you know, the context Parsi was talking about there was school lunches. Mm. And all of the benefits, I mean, it's much more than just feeding ourselves, yep. all of the benefits that come with that. And um, so, yeah, let's, let's you know, keep our minds open to the mm. possibility of doing things differently. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded actually of um, a time I was, I was uh, listening to a guy called Gilbert Inoka, who is mm. the um, leadership and culture manager of the All Blacks Rugby Union team. And they talk about this idea of being, and I, I might get this wrong because I'm just speaking off the top of my head, but this idea of being traditionally radical. Mm. And that what he talks about is protecting the core. So the core traditions of the All Blacks are almost, you know, sacrosanct. And, mm. and there's just no messing with that. But on the fringes and on the edges, being as radical as we can be to ensure, and whether that's in the way they prepare for the game, whether that's moves they try, positions, whatever it might be, but being really radical on those, um, on those edges because one of the things they recognised when they had a bit of a, a dip, which is... <laughs> You know, a dip, a dip for the All Blacks. It's a relative term. Yeah, a dip for the All Blacks is like a great season for everyone else. But they've recognised that when they have a dip, it's because they've stopped innovating mm. in the way they go about their rugby. Um, and I just think education is quite an interesting one because, you know, it, they, um, you know, as we said, there's a lot of tradition in education and everyone's been through education. Everyone's kind of has... It's just easier, isn't it, just mm. to keep the narrative going rather than perhaps challenging that narrative yeah and you know Sir Ken, who we uh talked about at the beginning of the interview feels exactly the same way as what mm. you know he's he talked along those lines mm. you know that that braveness to look at things and to to tinker with it 
Yeah. So if I heard Parsi um, correctly, <laughs> it, the solution to uh, any educational problem appears to be reggae and saunas. Yeah, in 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 that order, I think you you turn the record on on the turntable, you drop your kit and you open a beer <laughs> and you climb into the sauna. Oh, you painted a picture with Parsi Salberg. <laughs> well, all I can say is we're not going to share the video. <laughs> <laughs> for your benefit and ours. Thank you very much. Yeah, nobody, nobody wants to see that. So, if you found this conversation interesting, and if you do want the X-rated video, then all you need to do is make dial, sure dial one eight hundred. <laughs> make sure you like this podcast, subscribe to the podcast, leave us a comment in the comments section and of course please share this as far and as wide as you can if you'd like to know more about our work or if particularly you're interested in uh, finding out more about our upcoming online habits of leadership academy then head over to habitsofleadership.com and you can get more information there but until next time thanks very much tim thank you dan thank you very much for listening take care take it easy